A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks so much, Jane. A very good morning, everyone. And can I add my welcome to that of Suzanne's? Uh, my name's Alex, in case I haven't met you before. Can I pray for us so that God would help us as we look at this passage? Oh, Lord God, we do thank you that you speak to us in the words of Scripture. But we recognize that often your word is hard for us to understand or to accept and to follow. Uh, it says difficult and confronting things. And so, Lord, would you guide us by your Spirit so that our hearts hearts would not be hardened, uh, that we'd understand what your son is saying to us so that we'd see him more clearly, love him more dearly and follow him more nearly. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. You may have heard the, of the conversation, the radio conversation between an American Navy vessel and the Canadian Coast Guard. Uh, the conversation went kind of like this. Uh, Americans, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid collision. Canadians, please divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid collision. Americans, this is the captain of a US Navy vessel. We urge you to divert your course 15 degrees to the north. Canadians, no, we say again, we tell you to divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid collision. Americans, this is the captain of the aircraft carrier, the USS Abraham Lincoln. We are escorted by three cruisers, three destroyers, and a flotilla of support vessels. We de demand that you divert your course 15 degrees to the north, or we will put out countermeasures to ensure the safety of our vessels. Canadians, well, this is a lighthouse. Your call. <laughs> now, sometimes it's possible to feel completely secure and yet be unaware of the danger that we're in. Now, we've been looking at this series called Hard Sayings of Jesus. 
We've just been looking at four of these sayings in the middle of the Gospel of Luke. We could have had a long series because there's lots of hard sayings, but today is our last in this series before we move on next week looking at the book of Acts. And today we see an honest conversation between Jesus and a man who had everything. And Jesus says to this man, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, what Jesus said was hard for people to hear back then. And it's hard for people to hear today. Because here we have a man who felt completely secure and yet was unaware of the danger that he was in. And so it can be the same for us. And so as we look at this passage, we see three things. An essential question, a hidden danger, and then thirdly, escaping that danger. We see at the top of the passage in verse 18, essential question. A certain ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is that universal, the basic human question. You know, if there is life after death, if there is a heaven, how do I get there? If there is a God, how can I please that God? How can I pass the test and he lets me into heaven? Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that someone asks you this question. Say a colleague from work comes straight up to you at your desk and says to you, Hey, I hear you're a Christian. You should know the answer for this. How do I get to heaven? Now, after you get over the sheer shock, the surprise that someone has actually asked you that question and you pick your jaw up off the ground, what would you say? Well, you might say to this person, well, there's actually nothing you can do to get to heaven. It's, it's, it's not about that. Maybe you'd say the same thing that the Apostle Paul said to the Philippian jailer when that jailer asked him that same question. And Paul said, believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. But Jesus actually doesn't answer that way in this passage. Instead, he responds completely differently. And maybe Jesus sees something in this guy that needs to be challenged. Maybe he sees just too much of a sense of self-righteousness, self-sufficiency. A guy who's too full and he needs to be emptied. Because notice how Jesus responds. Firstly... He telegraphs the punch. This guy says to him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. I mean, why does Jesus pick him up on this? Is he nitpicking a little bit? Notice Jesus doesn't say, you're wrong. I'm not good. How can you say I'm good? I'm not good at all. He doesn't say that. Instead, it's like he's saying to this guy, why are you walking up to someone who you just think is a normal person, who you just think is a common rabbi, and you say that he is good? You know, Jesus is questioning whether it's possible for people to be good at all, because he says, no one is good except for God alone. He's he's hinting, he's providing a preview, he's telegraphing the punch, he's showing what is to come. Not just whether it's possible for people to be good enough to do anything to inherit eternal life, because they can't be, but also he's giving a hint as to who he is, the only one who is good. So he telegraphs the punch, but then secondly, he applies a standard religious test, a kind of religious test that any rabbi, if asked the same question, would have given. He says in verse 20, well, how are you at following the commandments? 
Now notice Jesus doesn't just list the Ten Commandments as a kind of academic exercise. He tells him, he lists those commandments which have particularly to do with how we relate to other people. It's like Jesus is getting very personal, very specific with this guy. An example, he, he says to him, well, what about, have you stolen? Have you robbed people? Have you exploited people? Have you, have you taken from people what is rightfully theirs? Or have you, have you been faithful to your wife? Have you lied? Think about what that means. Have you defrauded or misled anyone in business? And the man says to him, well, all of these I've kept since I was a boy. Now, a sidebar here. Uh, we're, we're not, the thing about the Ten Commandments is you're meant to think about them deeply. You're not meant to run down the Ten Commandments and think, I'm absolutely secure. You're meant instead to run down the Ten Commandments and think, I'm in trouble. <laughs> I, I, I haven't done these things. You're meant to run down them and be convicted and unsettled. You're meant to think, I haven't followed these things properly. Is there a plan B? Is there someone who can help me? I, I need a rescuer. But this guy doesn't do that. This guy was thinking about the religious rules in the same way that everyone else did back then. As a matter of outward compliance, not inward reality. As a matter of action, not as a matter of the hearts. And that's what people often do today. When you ask them about the Ten Commandments, they'll say, sure, well, I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't robbed a bank. I've been faithful to my wife, more or less. The Apostle Paul looked at the commands the same way before he became a Christian. In, in Philippians 3, he said, well, as for righteousness based on the law, when I was a Pharisee, I was absolutely flawless. On the outside, I looked great. Look, by the standards of the time, this guy would have ticked all the boxes. We're told elsewhere in the passage that he was a rich ruler. That meant he had all the material success and status that you could ask for. But there was also an enormous moral attractiveness about him. He could say to Jesus, according to the standards of those times, I've kept all these laws. You know, I, I have upheld justice. I've, I've been kind. I've had integrity. I've treated people fairly. The accepted worldview back then was that wealth was a, a reward for good behavior. That if you treated God well by following the religious laws, God would treat you well by giving you a good life. And this guy had it all. He must have lived a good life. Therefore, he must have everything together. But the thing is, he didn't have everything together. Because if he had, he wouldn't have come up to Jesus with, with this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's this nagging doubt, this sense of insecurity. It's like he's saying to Jesus, listen, I've been successful morally, materially. Uh, I've been successful religiously, socially, but maybe there is something in life, Jesus, that I'm missing. Could you help me out? What, what am I missing here? If you translated it to this times, to our times, this guy would have, you know, had all the university degrees from the right places. He would have made partner by the time he was 30. He would have already made millions. He would have started a family. He would have been involved in church. He would have been leading a Bible study group. He would have been giving generously. He would have been on the church council. He would have been respected. And yet here 
he's coming to Jesus still with these doubts. What, what else do I have to do? To his surprise, he feels like there is something missing. You know, if this guy was walking down Nathan Road and he wasn't watching at the lights and a KMB bus hit him and his number was up, he wouldn't be sure if his spiritual portfolio was enough. Have I got enough? How would you answer this guy's question? Maybe you have had this question before. So we see the essential question, but secondly, we see the hidden danger. Notice that Jesus doesn't push back when this guy says, well, I've I've done all these things since I was a boy. He doesn't push back and say, liar, let me tell you when you were 12. No, he doesn't do that at all. Instead, we're told that in Mark's account, Mark's Gospel's account of the same story, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus wanted this man to know salvation. And it's like Jesus goes to work on this guy, that he begins surgery on him. He, he gets his scalpel and cuts him open and reveals what's in his heart. Because he says to him in verse 22, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Now, it's important for us to know that this is not standard instruction. Uh, Jesus doesn't come up to everybody and tell them to give up everything at every time in order to follow him. It's very, very rare for him to come up to someone and say, you've got to give up everything. Give it all away. Give it all away now in order to follow me. But he gives this particular instruction to this particular guy because he has something ruling over him already. This man's ruler, his, his king, was money and possessions. And Jesus knew that this man's talk of eternal life was all a fake because he wasn't willing to give up what he already had in this life for what was on offer in the life to come. He wasn't willing to give up being ruled by money and instead being ruled by Jesus. This man didn't possess his possessions, they were possessed by him. He, they, he, they possessed him. That's why Jesus begins heart surgery on this guy because this guy doesn't know the danger that he is in. He, he is blind to it. Jesus is saying to this man, you are putting your trust and your confidence in your wealth and in your accomplishments. You don't realize, but this is alienating you from God. Here's how you can realize the danger that you are in. Imagine giving up everything that you have. I want you to imagine your life without money. I want you to imagine it all gone. No inheritance, no titles, no status, no success, no servants, no mansions. Imagine giving up all that. Imagine it all gone and all you have left is me. Is that good enough for you? Well, we see this man's response in verse 23. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Now notice that this guy doesn't go back and forth with Jesus. He doesn't try to negotiate on on Jesus' commands, which means he's not really prepared to contemplate what Jesus, doing what Jesus has asked him to do. Uh, He's not prepared to come to God on on God's terms, even though he he would believe that God exists, really, he doesn't think that God is good enough, that what God can offer him is better than what he already has. 
Now, the word here used for sad should be translated as grieved. He, he was very grieved. And that means to ha- have this sense of deep loss, distress, disorientation. Um, that as this man you know, even contemplated giving away his money, it was like he was giving away that which was at the very centre of his life, that which his life depended on, that which was his identity, and he couldn't imagine doing it. This man had no peace when he went to Jesus. He had no peace when he talked with Jesus. He had no peace when he walked away from Jesus. So Jesus looked at this guy and says to him those incredible words, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, over the years, people have tried to soften this hard saying. Some people have said things like, Jesus isn't speaking about a literal needle. You see, in Jerusalem, there are walls and in the walls, there are large gates. And within these larger gates, there are smaller gates, really narrow gates, narrow gates that are just wide enough for a person to walk through. And these smaller, narrow gates are given the nickname, the eye of the needle. And you know, in Jesus' time, the biggest animals known in those parts were camels. And you know, if, if you took a camel and you took all the luggage off the camel and you got the camel to go down on its knees and you really pressed the camel through, the, the camel might complain a little bit, but it was hard, but you could get the camel through the eye of the needle. It would put up a bit of a fight, but it was possible. You know, that's what people would say. But it's an exaggeration. Because not only was there no evidence that that expression, an eye of the needle, was used before the 9th century AD, that's not what Jesus means. It's pretty clear that he's using a metaphor here. Every culture has metaphors for these kinds of things. Snowflakes chants, heard about that? It's impossible for a snowflake to, 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 to last being put in a hot place. It's impossible for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. And so if that's the case, that Jesus is saying it's impossible for the rich to inherit the kingdom of heaven, how do we deal with it? Well, we can start by saying the problem is not money itself. Uh, Jesus didn't mean that it was sinful to be rich. It's not that individual rich people are by default bad, nor that individual poor people are by default good. There are people who have incredible wealth in this life and who can sit loosely to it. Their wealth doesn't have a hold on them. They don't think about their wealth all the time. They can easily give away their wealth to the right causes. It doesn't have a hold on their identity and security. And think, you know, even a cursory look at the Bible would know that there there were wealthy people who were followers of God. Abraham, Joseph, Job, David, Solomon, King David when he gave money towards the building of the temple in Jerusalem, at the dedication of that money, most scholars say he would have dedicated, he would have given the vast majority of his fortune towards the construction of that temple. And when he did so, he prayed to God saying, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hands. Wealth doesn't have to be your identity and security, which means that when you're rich, you can give lots of it away very easily. 
And, and you're not devastated when it gets taken away from you. Jesus is not saying that there is something incredibly wrong with money. But what he is saying is, it can be incredibly dangerous to have money. He's saying that money has this power to blind us to it. In fact, it has such a power to deceive us about our spiritual status that we need the gracious intervention of God in order to realize this. You know, let me give you an example of the blinding power that money can have over us. If you don't have a lot of money and then all of a sudden you, you land in a lot of money, um, you can more easily see the threat that money can have over you in, in changing your character and values. It's like a frog that gets dropped into boiling water all of a sudden. It realizes the danger very quickly and jumps out. But when the problem with money is, is that if it slowly takes a hold on you, it, you, you don't realize it over a longer period of time. When you start to make a bit of money, you start to buy those things that you didn't have before. Those things, by definition, are luxuries, right? They're luxuries because you lived life perfectly fine without them before, but now you're buying them. Now, the thing about the luxuries is you get used to them and you, and you find they're delightful, they're great, and, and you pretty soon start to think, I can't live without these luxuries. These luxuries become necessities. And you get conditioned into thinking that you have to live to a particular certain standard because all the people that you hang out with are living to that particular standard and they're buying the same things. And the thing is... Those things which you could previously live without, you now think you cannot live without. You always feel as though you don't have enough money to live according to the standard that you want, but you do have enough money. So you aren't inclined to give away the money that you have towards God's causes. You keep it to maintain a certain standard of living that you think you must have. You think that you don't have enough money, but really you do. You're not the frog that's been dropped in the boiling kettle of water and realises the danger and jumps out. You're the frog that's been put into a lukewarm kettle of water that is slowly heated up until it's boiling. You don't realise the temperature is going up. You're oblivious to the danger. You're blind to the power that money has on you until it's too late. Now, the thing with possessions and wealth is they, they might not actually be your particular problem. Um, you might not be susceptible to the same danger that the rich young ruler is. But there is the chance that there is something else that has a controlling influence in your life. And your challenge is to figure out what that is. When you see that something has a grip on someone, you can really tell the power of that particular thing when it's threatened, when it could be taken away from that particular person and that person becomes incredibly anxious or angry or, or does something really dramatic and drastic. It might, it might not be material wealth that has a grip on you like it did to that rich ruler, but it could be professional wealth. You know, it could be career success. You've studied and you've worked really hard because you've got to get to this particular career goal. When you don't get that promotion that you wanted, you end up devastated. It might not be material wealth, it could be professional wealth, or it could be aesthetic wealth. Your, your beauty, your looks are what really matter to you. 
And so you spend money easily on, on clothes or you get really devastated when you spot every new wrinkle or blemish on you. Or you're continually comparing yourself to how you look to other people around you. You're all about aesthetic wealth. Or it could be about familial wealth, family success, the success of your children, the name of your family is what matters most. Getting your kids into the right schools so they can have the right marks and get into the right career and have the right family and the circle of life goes over again. It might not be familial wealth. It could be lifestyle wealth. Getting your life just right, right bank balance, right place to live, right holidays, right friends, nothing too demanding, everything's under control. Or it could be moral wealth. You want to be a good person and you want everyone to know that you are a good person. What is it that has a a grip on you? What is it that is competing with Jesus for the throne of your heart? What is it that if Jesus had the same conversation with you that he had with that rich ruler... He would say to you, this is what you lack. I want you to get rid of this. I want you to let go of this and come follow me. What would it be for you? Don't be blind to the danger that you're in. Jesus is telling you that you cannot be in the kingdom of God if you don't have him as your king. So if that's the hidden danger, how can we escape the danger? Do you notice the response of the disciples to the conversation between Jesus and this rich ruler? Well, who then can be saved? (laughs) They were astonished. You know, because according to, to their categories, this guy is the perfect example of someone who could get in. He had everything. He looked like he'd been blessed from God. If this guy can't get in, who can get in? Well, if we're to escape the danger that this guy was in, what what do we do? Two things. First of all, do what this rich ruler didn't. Verse 28, Peter says, We have left everything to follow you. Now, we know that that's not literally true because the disciples didn't leave their spouses, they didn't leave their kids, <laughs> they didn't leave their homes, they, 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 they didn't commit themselves to a life of absolute poverty and destitution. They haven't given up everything at every moment. What it means is that they made Jesus first ahead of everything else in life. And we have to do the same thing if we're going to follow Jesus. One way that you can free yourself from the power that money has over you is to give money away freely. Now, often Christians talk about the tithe you know, the tithe, 10%. But the thing is, the New Testament never commands the tithe. The New Testament never says, you must give away 10%. And and the trap for a lot of us is just to think, well, if I give away 10%, God will be pleased. We, We say to ourselves and we say to God, God, just tell me what I have to do to make you happy. It's like paying taxes. Here's your 10%. You know, I keep the rest. And we don't really have a heart for God's causes. We're just jumping through hoops. Instead, we need to realize that everything we have belongs to Him. We're just temporary stewards of what God has given us. And therefore, we need to prayerfully and consistently pray, sorry, prayfully and consistently pray, no, prayerfully and consistently commit ourselves to giving sacrificially to God's causes. A good principle is sacrificial giving. For some people, that might be 10%. Because, you know, otherwise giving more than 10% means they don't have enough to put on the table or to pay the rent. 
Okay? But for the vast majority of us, 10% is probably not going to make a dent too much on our standard of living. It's not sacrificial at all. Now, that principle applies not just to your giving, your, your finances, but basically anything that you could have, uh, anything that has a power over you. So think for a moment, what has power over you? What has its grip on you? And how can you give it away? For some of us that are obsessed with career success, it might mean not taking the next promotion. For some of us that are just fixated on the success of our family and kids, stop pushing your kids so hard. For some of us who just are obsessed with our moral performance, with making sure we can control God by the good things that we do, remind yourself it's not the good things that you do that can earn you a place into heaven. You can't earn your place into heaven. Jesus says to the disciples from verse 29, they cannot outgive God. In fact, anything that they give away in this lifetime is for their good. So that they, it's a sheer privilege. It's a joy to be able to give away what God has given us in this lifetime and the next for his purposes. So we avoid the danger by doing what that rich ruler didn't. But secondly, we look to the one who makes the impossible possible. You know, the disciples ask that question, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, well, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Jesus answers that essential question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, it's impossible. You cannot do anything to inherit eternal life, no matter how impressive you look, no matter how much you give away. It is impossible with man but it is possible with God. And so, think of who Jesus is. The Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. You know, there was a similarity between Jesus and this rich ruler. Jesus, who knew the the incalculable, the insurmountable splendor and riches and glory of heaven. And yet he gave it all away for the one thing that he lacked. He gave it all away for us because he lacked us. He gave it all away so that we would know the riches and the splendor and the glory of an eternal relationship with God. Jesus became poor. He became nothing. He became human. He went to the cross. He became broken and vulnerable and humiliated. He was crucified on our behalf so that we could have that which we lacked for eternity, a relationship with God. Once you recognize the sacrificial generosity of Jesus, you recognize that everything else that you can chase after in this life will not fulfill you, will not deliver you on the promises that they make like Jesus can. And so it frees you up to be really joyfully generous with the time, the talents, the treasures that God has given you for His purposes. It becomes a sheer privilege. You want to give it away. All for the one who has given everything for you so that you would lack nothing in salvation. So give yourself to Him. It's a joy and a privilege. Give yourself to Him repeatedly, consistently. Encourage one another. How can we do this together? Let's pray.
Lord God, we've, yeah, we want to pause again and, and recognize that your son says difficult things to us, uh, things that are hard for us to understand and to accept, things that often we just want to walk away from. And we look at these, the things of this world, the good things that you give us, and we just want to numb ourselves with them and, 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 and tell ourselves that these things can give us all that we want in life and these things are all that matters in life when really we're just fooling ourselves and we're distracting ourselves from the, these, these deep and uncomfortable truths that you're telling us. Uh, so Lord, would you forgive us? Uh, perhaps you're speaking directly to some of us here in this room who need um, to make some serious decisions, to ask some serious questions about how, how, how they're living, um, to think about what it is that has a hold on us. Maybe it's money, maybe it's something else. And we need to put some steps in place so we'd loosen our hold of these things and instead hold on to Jesus much more. Uh, would you forgive us, Lord, for thinking that there, is, there are other things that can possibly be better than Jesus? that can possibly give us more than Jesus. And would you guide us by your Holy Spirit so that we would be people who freely give up what you have given us for your sakes, because you are the one who have given us eternal life in Jesus. Guide us in these things, we pray, because we're insufficient on our own. We need your grace. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.